My name's Stephen Crafty. I'm here at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm presenting Talking Design. I'm here with a very fascinating man, uh, landscape architect Steve Calhoun. And Steve, I just stumbled across his work by accident recently. I was uh, inspecting a building by Fender Katsalides Architects, and I saw this most extraordinary courtyard and I'd never seen anything like it before, and I was kind of shaking, and I it was unexpected. It was truly one of those moments. So it's it's the work of Steve Calhoun from um, Tract uh, Consultants, and welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you, Stephen. Steve, before we get to that wonderful experience <laughs> I had a few days ago, tell me about your background, because it is fascinating, and there's a great link to RMIT University. I, uh, I came to Australia from the U.S. I was working in California. I came out to replace um, a fellow at Tract, who was, at that time, Tract was a part of Merchant Builders, and uh, they had a fledging little office uh, that did primarily merchant builders, architectural and planning work. And Graham Gunn was heading that? Uh, no, Graham oh. Gunn had his own office, oh, okay. but we, we were an independent firm within mm -hmm. merchant builders. And I came out to replace Rodney Wolf, uh, who had who was an Australian but studied in the U.S. and had to return for one year to complete his degree. Uh, so I arrived on a Friday. And the following Monday, I went to work, and I received a call from a fellow by the name of Ron Raymond, uh, who introduced himself and said that he had just started a graduate diploma of landscape architecture at RMIT, and would I be interested in teaching? I said, sure. Uh, he said, well, let's have lunch and talk about it. And I said, fine. Uh, when would you like to do that? And he said, oh, today. So we show up and have lunch, and uh, I said, so tell me, when do classes start? He said, tonight. <laughs> I said, oh, fine. <laughs> so he gave me the address. It was a little little building that wasn't on the central campus. It was just on Latrobe Street. And uh, so I show up that night, I think 6, 6.30, after work, and uh, he introduces me to the class, and that was the last I ever saw of Ron Raymond. <laughs> he disappeared, and I got left holding the baby. <laughs> so, Steve, you ended up founding the Landscape Arch Architecture course at RMIT. Well, what happened is uh, when, my, when Rodney Wolf returned from the U.S., um, you know, I carried the course through that year, and then the two of us did it, because we had to you know, get all these people through. And I said to Rodney, I said, this is a not a good course because all of these people, they were all architects and engineers, work all day, and then they come in and do studies every night of the week, you know, and they're just dead tired. They're just flat, you know. Uh, so let's go to the dean and ask him to close this course down and start up a proper undergraduate school. So we went in to see Graham Gunn, who... Uh, we worked with the merchant builders a lot and explained the situation to him, and he agreed. Uh, which, very interestingly, to create a uh, new undergraduate course in the School of Architecture required him to cut architectural 
jobs to create positions in landscapes, <laughs> uh, and he agreed to do that. Um, so then Rodney and I had to write the course syllabus for uh, mm -hmm. uh, to get it through the you know the higher education departments, and and we also had to process these students, get them through. Uh, so we did that. It was, <laughs> it was about three or four years of See, thrown in at the deep end. Yeah. Steve, it's interesting how landscape architecture has, in a sense, probably become come full circle. When you came out in the 70s, yes. there was probably a real interest in indigenous species, natural, you know, natural planting, a sense of the outdoors. And then through the 80s, we went into a very stilted manicured look and yeah. slowly even through just through dr series of droughts people are starting to go back to a more naturalistic approach to the garden would you yeah, see it that way yeah i think they're being forced to I, I think well they're being forced in the sense of uh environmentally there's so much pressure to to uh do you know green work and uh one during these periods of drought and so forth, just can't keep pumping the water on it, so you're forced to use more mm -hmm. drought-tolerant mm -hmm. plants. And But I think the the biggest thing is there's been a real education occur. Mm -hmm. You know, people are now highly sensitized and aware of all of the environmental issues. But uh, all of our work uh, has to, by its very nature, include sustainability measures. Mm -hmm. Um, Steve Tract was quite a small office when you arrived from uh, yeah, America. It was, it was one landscape architect and one planner. So, it was an so office of two. that's small. Now it's uh, a staff of eighty. Uh, no, those are landscape architects. Landscape yeah. architects, just 30, 80 landscape architects, yeah. which is quite extraordinary. Probably one of the biggest practices employing landscape the, architects the in largest. Australia. Yeah, the largest. And you're doing work in China. You work yep. with major architects, including, yep. including Fender Katsalides, yep. a whole host of architects. Before we go to this project that gave me the adrenaline rush, mm -hmm. one of the key projects that started Tracks Rise was the St Kilda Foreshore. Yep. Tell me a little bit about that. What was the problem at the time? Uh, Merchant Builders moved its office from uh, South Yarra to Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. And uh, we got over into the new office, and we didn't really have a lot of work on, uh, enough to keep us busy. This was after Rodney had returned. So what year are we looking at? Uh, probably 77, 78. Uh, so Rodney and I thought, well, let's go see the local council uh, engineer. So we went and saw the St. Kilda Council engineer. I can't remember his name at the moment. Um and he said, well, he's, you know, we introduced ourselves and what we did. And he said, this is very interesting. He said, because I've just uh, received the funding to uh, create, to uh, do a major upgrade to Beaconsfield Parade. Because at that time it was a little two-lane road. Mm -hmm. And there was no seawall. Uh, there was nothing on the foreshore. And during storms, the sand would blow up over mm -hmm. the road. And uh, they wanted to create a bigger, uh, bigger road so that mm -hmm. uh, you know, because it was pressure on <laughs> vehicles was coming 
greater and greater. Uh, so he said, see what you can do with this. So mm. off we went, and uh, we created this grand master plan for St. Kilda Foreshore. It went, eventually it went from Elwood to Port Melbourne. Uh-huh. And... Uh, when we presented to the council, people were just stunned. They'd never seen <laughs> landscape to them was something to do with your little garden. You know, they'd never seen anything on that scale. And uh, Anne Latrail happened to be sitting in the uh, back of the presentation, and then she went and wrote uh, wrote a story about that. Anne Latrail actually appeared on was a guest on this show and a fascinating woman, a wonderful writer, you know. Um, how did that change the direction of track? Well, that together was followed shortly thereafter by uh, Tract winning the uh, Newcastle Foreshore competition, put Tract on the, on the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, from that, we started getting... Uh, calls for major projects from all the cities, you know, S- Sydney and Brisbane and Perth and Adelaide, you know. So we, we, we established offices, all the, which we were able to do because of our teaching at RMIT. Mm. All of those ex-engineers and architects that we taught, we <laughs> hired <Yeah>. most of them. <laughs> they became our uh, foot soldiers, uh, out, you know, and we took on the world, you know. Um, now, I have to get back to this project. Okay, 108 Flinders Street. 108 Flinders Street. It's one of those experiences. I'm not sure if the public are actually allowed to see this because it is in a private courtyard and you'd have to be pretty game to ring the bell and see if you can get entrance. But it's one of those experiences that will change your perception of landscape architecture. Just a bit of backstory. I, I was looking at the apartments and Carl Fender showed me through. He said, look, wait, the best is yet to be seen. So I I walked in and for those who can't see, obviously this is a, a verbal show, audio, but I walked in and I saw these large trees hanging upside down, suspended by wires, held to in these oversized pots, almost like chandeliers. And I said, and there was also this uh, enormous vertical wall of um, plants, and it was in an in an atrium space that was internal, so there was not a lot of light. And I just said to Carl, I said, "This is really cruel." How could you? How could you treat trees like that? Turn them upside down, and 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 he said they're plastic. So artificial. Artificial. I thought that was a marvelous idea, and Carl said, "Well, it's not really sustainable to have trees that you know are going to die." Tell me about how this evolved because it is quite unique, Steve. Well, as I said to you before, it's hard to believe that uh, the design of this space uh, really came out of functional requirements, Uh, even though it was a flight of fancy to to come up with the idea. Uh, But um, there coexisted the need for an engaging space because it was very narrow it's 8 by 18 the space mm-hmm. and uh, you need something that engages the people that mm-hmm. live there 
and all of their apartments face onto this space uh, because it's very, you know, tight, inner, tight inner urban. Mm -hmm. There's no external views from the, from the building. Uh, so you needed that, and then there's the issue of resident privacy. So you needed a bit of a mm. landscape buffer between facing apartments. And there's minimal light. And minimal lights. And these apartments are only eight meters across, so it's yeah. it's a really tight site. Yeah. Uh, so all of that grew the need to have a landscape. And then when you got down to the actual requirements, uh, there wasn't enough light, so they had to be artificial. Uh, and um, the trees, the, the idea of the upside-down trees kind of grew from uh, the idea of you could not stand them up without enormous amount of wiring because then the weight would be you know, <laughs> the wrong way up. Upside down, yeah. they... they uh, they hung very happily, you know. Uh, so that was kind of, I went, oh, boom, you know. <laughs> and I came up with a little sketch. And uh, the thing that worried me the most was going to be, uh, I wasn't worried about Carl, but was going to be the client's response to uh, Such an design like this. Yeah, <laughs> so like... Uh, because it, it's worked in with this wonderful... Uh, Wall of Eden, Garden of Eden, yeah. by Gary Emery, graphic yeah. designer, and it kind of creates this very magical environment. It, it is. I mean, that's a, just the most beautiful uh, graphic work. You know, it is. It's it's a fanciful uh, bit of graphics too. Yeah. And for those who can't see, there's actually two shallow ponds that yes. actually form skylights to the car parking below, which is actually a very clever way of getting light into what is traditionally a very dark space. Yeah. Well, it's all about the verticality. So what I wanted to do is bring <clears throat> the sky down to ground level, which has mm. just happened in this case to be a, a car park. But uh, it is so one of those things... When that... you walk in, you look up, you can see through through the water, you know. What, um, Steve, what was Carl's reaction when you finally presented these <laughs> hanging trees. Uh, I don't remember precisely, but I think he would have sat back and not said a word and looked and looked and loved his job. Uh, and then eventually he would have smiled, and then I knew I had him. <laughs> Steve, you were telling me before that a, uh, a lot of the successful uh, designs that track cons uh actually undertakes is due to the client and that you need that visionary client who actually well, believes in something. Now what what I said is great projects always have a great client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really do because uh, the clients control what you do in a mm -hmm. way. Uh, you can come up with marvelous ideas but if the client just, you know, squashes it. And says, <laughs> if you, Steve, if you have an idea, I mean this is quite a, a, a an extraordinary idea it's very yeah. out there but if you have an idea that you firmly believe in at what point do you realize you've, you you can't go any further with it i mean how far do you persist with an idea 
when they threatened to fire you. <laughs> Which it's happened many times. And have they ever kind of gone back to you and said, look, Steve, we actually think you were right? Some have. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's a very unusual experience, you know. It, it does like, happen. Uh, it does happen occasionally. <laughs> um, so but wait, the way yeah. I tackle that typically is, I, in fact, I've got one on the boil now uh, for the same client as this building, mm. River Lee. Um, and I know the Melbourne City Council is going to uh, want one thing and the client wants something else. So what I do, what I've done is I've prepared three alternative plans. One is what the client wants, one is what the council wants, and then one in between. So they'll you think the one in between will satisfy both? I, I, I just play a straight mm. back mm. bat. You know, I, I go in and I, I fight hard mm. for what the client wants. Uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, Melbourne City Council aren't known for their <laughs> generous spirit. <laughs> Steve, the other thing <laughs> I find interesting, I am interested in new ideas in the landscape mm. and the... the uh, the green or vertical wall isn't new. Patrick Blanc yeah. has done it for decades yeah. now. I think he started in the 60s, 70s, started to go that way. Yeah. I saw his very first one uh, in Paris. In Key uh, Bromley? Yeah, I think. Which is quite extraordinary. Yeah. But this is new in yeah. terms of it uses plastic plants. Yeah. Has it been done before? I can't remember. Oh, I'm sure. Has. I'm sure. To that was... scale? Well, that's probably a different issue, yeah. I mean, this is an extraordinary wall, isn't it? <laughs> how, the other thing I was going to ask you, Steve, is how do you make a green wall full of artificial plants look real? Because uh, you fooled me. Yeah, no. That, you fooled me. That was, that's through very careful effort and planning. Um, they, what we did, we designed it. Those plants all have a flow and... You know, so whilst it looks like it's just all this green fuzzy stuff, uh, and they they was all it was all laid out according to our plans, and they went on three meter by one meter panels, mm -hmm. but it was all done as one thing and then cut up and put in like that. So it, it, that was a a very technical exercise to get that. We didn't want just, you know, around willy-nilly. I think yeah. what interests... So there's a flow yeah. to the plant. But what interests me is, is in a sense, and I was talking to Carl about this, in a sense this is quite sustainable uh, because... Well, it is. Because you don't it's have to... It's not drawing any resources. It's not drawing any resources. It doesn't <laughs> right. need water. Yeah. It's going to look great for the long term. There's no rubbish connected with There's it. no rubbish. <laughs> it's not going to stuff up drains. Yeah. It's actually... It'll look great all year round, yep. and yet people often associate sustainability with the natural product, with natural yep. plants, yep. and they think, oh, this isn't sustainable, but in a sense it is really highly yep. sustainable. Yeah, not very much so. Steve, e even, the, even the water is a product of capturing rainwater. This is the, the water roof. fountain, yeah. the feature wall of water. And, and reusing that, so it is really a sustainable landscape. The other thing with the water is obviously deadens the sound of the city noise that's beyond. that's what it's for because if in a tight um courtyard like that noise can just 
echo and ricochet that reverberate through it, you know, and, and that that could be very disturbing to the people that live around it. Steve, where are we heading in landscape architecture? Because I'm not quite sure where things are going at the moment. There seems to be an awful lot of just filling up spaces with very ordinary trees. Yeah. Where are we going? Well, I guess I'd rather talk about the positive side. Yeah, no, no, well, let's... I, I think there is a lot of filling spaces, that's what yeah. I call it. Uh, but for people uh, like Tract um, that do really good work, uh, they're just an increasing market. And um, on larger scale projects, oh, absolutely, and smaller as well. Oh yeah, I, I do. In fact, you'll see in that interview that mm -hmm. uh, last year I completed a very small courtyard in Carlton for Anna and Maury Schwartz. Uh, that was all about art because she's an art dealer and you know it's just fantastic but it's a very very small space and at the same time I was working on a master plan for a new community uh, satellite city in Suzhou uh, China it was 430 square kilometers wow it's just extraordinary so how do you how do you get your head around the various scales that's that's just part of my profession. I I've I've done that for I've been a landscape architect for fifty years now. And you now, trained in America? Yeah. At Harvard University. Wow. <laughs> the same place Carl Fender went. <laughs> um Steve, look, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I I think the work is quite extraordinary and it, it I think what yeah. I love about it is it makes you think. And you really walk, it, does, like, it makes you think, and you think the possibilities of what can be achieved in the landscape. And, and it has what we were talking about earlier, it has that sense of joy, yeah. you know, like you just, you, you get uplifted when you see things like and that. And it should. Yeah. It should. And that, that's the way all landscapes should be, not just humdrum, you know, filling in the space. So uh, we're... Uh, I'm, I always consider myself to be one of the luckiest people that ever lived, because I get to do... I think Things we could like throw this. in talent as well, Steve. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, my mentor and uh, the bo my boss in California that sent me out here, and he and I are still very good friends, uh, uh, said that uh, once said in an interview that I remember he said. Uh, Greatness comes with experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you really do. Uh, you know, after 50 years, if you really got your brain turned on and working yeah. at it, you know, you, you've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> where does, where, um, Steve, where does Australia fit in terms of, you know, adventurous landscape architecture worldwide? I mean, are we kind of pioneering new areas or are we kind of just following trends? Oh, uh, inevitably we're following trends, but uh, I would say there's there's some very very good work being done here. Yeah, um, Trank's yeah. work I think is on par with anything yeah. internationally, and yeah. there's a number of other offices probably um, that are doing yeah equally yeah. as good. Yeah. 
they, they would say better. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, the image of walking into that courtyard and seeing those chandelier, that's all I can describe them as, yeah. of these trees. We'll stay in, the word chandelier, we'll stay, it, we'll stay in my mind for many years. So, look, yeah. thanks so much. You've been with um, Steve Calhoun track from Track Consultants. And, look, thanks so much for coming on the show today. As my French teacher wife would say. Avec plaisir. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> Means my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne.